0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meet in 3.
2: I I think we should realize that we more or less have a broken food system. When 800 million of us go to bed hungry, uh, 600 million are obese, uh, we waste 30% of our food, then something is fundamentally wrong.
1: We'll introduce you to one food waste solution happening in Asia.
2: They introduced a system where residents were issued an electronic ID card that would open an automated bin and enable them to weigh the food waste being dropped off, and then they would be charged, you know, in a certain amount of money yep. for the weight of that food.
1: And we'll take a look at some of the real struggles happening closer to home. How is it possible that a meal that was perfectly fine to consume at ten fifty nine p.m. then becomes waste at eleven p.m.? So tune in to this week's Meet and Three on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com.
4: Welcome to Food Without Borders, a show about food, politics, and identity. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network.org. My guest today is Essie Bartels. She's a food entrepreneur and the founder of Essie Spice, a small batch spice and sauce company inspired by Essie's upbringing in Ghana and her travels. Yeah, is that good? That's es- pretty accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show, Essie. Thank you. I'm glad that was accurate because I put that yes. one together. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you, you got it. I you nailed, nailed it. it. Yep, you awesome. did um well i'm so glad you're here you came all the way from the great state of new jersey <laughs> not as far as ghana. Is, it, you, not as
2: far as ghana but it is a trip it is a trip especially because i um where i live is not by very good transportation so you have to drive and park and take the bus and take the train it's
4: i appreciate it but, um, and you will be rewarded with pizza <laughs>
3: <laughs> love it love it
4: which is i think the w- reason why most people agree to, I do come the to the <laughs> <laughs> great um well, I'm so happy you're here. Uh, I'd love to kind of just start a little bit at the beginning to hear about um you and your your life in Ghana and your upbringing. I read that you were responsible for doing the cooking of your entire family.
2: Well, to some <laughs> extent when I w- well, not when I was, you know, really young, but yeah. when I was um, a little bit older I definitely had to take charge of that but when I was younger my mom would be like I'm cooking but you need to be here at all times even if I knew how to make whatever it is she was making like frying an egg or making rice she's like I don't care you still have to be here so
4: why was it so important for I her? think
2: obviously culturally mm-hmm. um it's such a taboo back home. And I mean, things are changing now, but it's such a taboo to have a daughter that cannot cook because then it's like a huge thing. Then she can't get married. Right. Uh. Um And so, you know, she always wanted to make sure that I knew how to cook Um and and it didn't matter. I think it's something across a lot of African homes. It doesn't matter if you know how to make it. You still have to be in the kitchen because She might want you to pick up a spoon, which is right in front of her, but she wants you to pick it up for her. They do. African parents are crazy, but (laughs) that's you know standard. Were you the only girl of of Uh, all the siblings? I have. I I'm the second. I'm the first, and my sister is the second. So there's two of us, but I was older, Mm -hmm. so I was in the kitchen a lot more than my sister. And Mm -hmm. then I think when she was in the kitchen a little bit more, I was in high school, so um, that changed. I wasn't there to experience her being there as well.
4: So mm-hmm. you really learned how to cook at a pretty young age.
2: Definitely. I remember from like 7 or 8 I was I was like whipping up things.
4: <laughs> what are, you know, some of the typical West African dishes that you grew up learning to cook and you remember your your mom preparing for you?
2: Um, I mean a lot of our food is um starchy. Mm-hmm. So we eat a lot of root, root vegetables and root tubers, so like yams, cassavas, cocoyams, um, and then we also eat a lot of um you know uh yam leaves, cassava leaves. Uh we eat a lot of soups, a lot of rice, um, and uh I guess Lots of vegetables, but a lot more of starches. I think because um, indigenously from before, a lot of us were farmers. And so you needed a lot of energy to go to the farm and keep you fueled for the whole day. So a lot of our meals were starch heavy. Um, Things are changing now because we're learning that that's not so great, especially now that we're not in the farm the whole day. Most of us are in offices and doing all of that. So, yeah, having a bowl of fufu, which is like one of the most typical dishes made with cassava um, in the morning before you go to work is not ideal. But those are pretty much um, our main dishes. Lots of root tubers, vegetables, soups, and, um, and, uh, yeah, vegetables. Usually vegetables from... From the root tubers and a lot of fish as well, because we're by the coast, mm-hmm. so we get a lot of um, fish from the sea. And we also have a we have actually, I believe, the largest man made lake in Ghana. Hmm. Um, I think China is building a new one that might make it bigger than what we have, but until then, it is the largest in the world. So wow. we get a lot of fish from there as well.
4: Um, so you decided to leave Ghana when you were 18 and come to the United States. What was the reason you wanted to leave?
2: So um, I was moving because of college. I wanted to come to college in the U.S., and um, so that's what uh, that's what brought me here. I remember speaking to my dad about it, and he said, if you get a scholarship to go to university in the U.S., then you can go. If you don't get a scholarship, then you, you're going to stay here, and you're going to go to a local university. So I got a scholarship, and so I, I got to come to school here, and I've been here ever since. Mm-hmm. How does
4: your parents feel about you leaving? I mean, it sounds like your mom was sort of grooming you to have like a typical very typical <laughs> life, like, you know, teaching you how to cook so you could get married, Be married and, and then and completely take thwarted that plan. Oh
2: yeah, definitely. Um and also because I'm her first daughter. Mm. So, I mean, a lot of pressure. It, it was a lot of pressure, but um my mom had to look at the big picture. Um and see that, yes, I'm, I'm leaving, but I'm not just, you know, taking a trip. I'm going to get an education and then hopefully get a career out of that. And so I think, um, as much as it was, <laughs> it was hard for her, um, she understood what the benefit will be eventually. Cause I remember when I, when I came here in August, I mean, I had spent a couple of summers in London cause my, my mom's siblings live, live in England, but, um, it's it, it rings a lot in london but it's never as cold as it is here in the us mm-hmm. uh so i had never experienced that kind of cold <laughs> in when i moved to scranton pennsylvania which is like in the poconos in uh, Where pennsylvania where they showed the the, <laughs> the office yes That's my they,
4: understanding of Scranton yes, Pennsylvania <laughs> yes there's
2: literally nothing there nothing there um so i got here i was extremely depressed i i grew up in a big city so i come from a big metropolitan city like accra and i moved to scranton pennsylvania which is like the sh- the buses were stopping at 6 in the evening that's how low rural yeah. it was i mean things may have changed now um And it was extremely cold. I cried so much. My mom flew here the following month um, because I was like, I'm ready to come back home. She's like, no, 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 you're not. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. I would have thought she would. I know. Scooped you right up. No, She's like, no, we've already committed. You're staying. You're going to finish this. Good on you. You're not the first person to do this. So suck it up. (laughs) But she came. She came to reassure me that it was all going to be okay. That's a good one. Yeah, mom. yeah, she is.
4: Um. So, what other kinds of culture shock did you experience when you came to the U.S.? I imagine. Oh the my food goodness! Was
2: different. The people were different. I mean, Scranton is on another level of culture shock. I mean, <laughs> first of all, so the U.S. For <laughs> New Yorkers, it would be culture shock. Going <laughs> I, to exactly. Exactly for New Yorkers as well. But um, you know, of course, the food. Finding local food that. You know, we eat, like finding things like cassava, finding yams, finding palm oil, finding dried fish, you know, none of that was available. So you, you would, my mom would bring it to me when she was coming or I would get it when I went to New York and come to these African stores that are available here. There's nothing there. Um. So that's that. Of course, there was also a little bit of racism. Mm-hmm. My school was a private Catholic university. So there was about, um, I would say, literally while I was there, there was maybe 15 black people out of 3,500 um, uh, population. So you could count everybody. All the black people knew each other. It was that small, and so everywhere you went, you know, people knew who you were. Um, I remember one of the times another culture shock that I was just baffling was um, getting striving to get an A in class, and people would get C's and D's, and they were like excited. I just never got that. Like they were like, "Oh my God, I passed." Oh, yeah. Yeah. And and it's like my parents are um, I got a I I got a partial scholarship. It was about half of the tuition. And then eventually I became an RA so that my parents didn't have to pay anything. But the first year they had to still cover the rest of the tuition. So I'm thinking to myself, my parents have to come up with all this money, change it into dollars from CDs and pay this tuition, and I'm not gonna come here and get a C and be excited about it. That like that doesn't even make sense to me. But people are getting Cs and Ds, and they're just thrilled because they passed and they can move on to the next class. Yeah, that's some I could serious never privilege. Right exactly, that was ridiculous privilege. Yeah. And I, I yeah, it's I understand that
4: manifests as <laughs> just laziness and yeah, apathy. Exactly. But
2: the thing is, if you don't know the value of things, then you you behave that way there were people of course that were striving to get A's just like me because they understood why they were there but there's a majority of people that were just like yeah i just need to get a, a c or a c minus or a C plus just to get out yeah that's yeah
4: well i hope if not like the only takeaway is that it was you know motivating for you to oh work absolutely that much harder. oh
2: absolutely i'm just like yeah i'm gonna crush all these people yeah exactly
4: <laughs> um so you went to school to pursue business, yes, and then something shifted. I mean, yes. you're still in business, but right? You shifted towards food, right? What exactly. was the pivot there? Were you just so nostalgic for the food you ate growing up that you had to like um, create I, it? I,
2: I guess part of me was, but it, it, it. So I went to school for international business and management, and I minored in French. And so I spent three and a half years in the U.S. and um, six months in France. It was a great exposure, great, you know, meeting people from all over the world. I came back and got a great job at Hitachi as a Japanese company and worked my way up through um, different companies in global procurement. And I was doing great. I was going from one company to the other, you know, um, advancing my career, getting the exposure, getting the experience and making more money. So I was it was perfect. Um, But on the side Every other couple of weeks, something I would always do is cook and invite my friends over to come eat at home. That
4: is a good way to make friends, by the way. (laughs) Especially where you're somewhere you feel a little bit out of your element.
2: Absolutely.
4: Absolutely. And And it was probably a wonderful way for you to introduce yourself to people and kind of explain your
2: story. One thousand percent. And it started in college where I was president of the International Club and we needed money because that year we the the president that left before didn't get enough money for the budget for us to do the things we wanted to do so we didn't have enough money for that year when i was president so we had to come up with a way to raise money for um the group the the club so i'm like well what i know how to do is to cook so let's yeah. let's cook different things and let's make all the noise and let's get people excited to eat and that was i think one of the things that was like, you know, gear... I feel like everything that's happened to me and with me is gearing me up for what is coming up, you know, for my future, for my career, and for my business. Because even with procurement, everything I did with negotiating and procuring and operations and logistics is everything I did, and I am still using all of that expertise for SC Spice. Um, But the pivot was... After cooking for my friends and, you know, over and over, and them telling me, oh, this is good, whatever, this is amazing, I'm just like, yeah, you you just want to come and eat. It's not that great. It's not nothing more than what you would get at, like, S, uh, you know, Peter's house or whoever's house. It's probably the same thing. But they just kept going over and over. And it, uh, one day, one of my friends came over, brought his cousin, and his cousin said, I'm going to give you, you know, X amount of money and I want you to cook, you know, two or three things for me. So I cooked for him and then I was like, so I can cook for somebody and get all this money. <laughs> like I only spent like, let's say 30% of the money on the ingredients. So the 70% was mine. And I'm thinking, wow, that's a lot of money for just cooking these things and he was literally about to do somersaults so yeah, then
4: for you it was just so
2: intrinsic exactly this is what i do yeah, on a normal with your eyes closed. and but then for him he's like this is crazy like do you know what you're doing this is like he's probably never tasted anything like that before or not as good not as well yeah. that's what <laughs> i mean yeah so then he says um he I don't know what you want to do with this talent, but whenever you decide, let me know and I'll support you with money, with cash. Um, So I'm like, yeah, whatever. So then I had to sit, (laughs) so I had to sit down and really think about this. I'm like, what can I do with, um, with food that's not already on the market and doesn't require intense capital right away, like opening a restaurant or Mm -hmm. any of that? Um, Because I, in my mind, anything you know being in the culinary world was not something that i saw myself in because growing up it wasn't something that was really encouraged you know being a chef or being a a cook or owning a restaurant wasn't really like an in thing nobody was really encouraged yeah. to to cook and it, it was, was like
4: the stigma was that it was a, a domestic exactly. choice exactly
2: it's a domestic choice so it was like oh you're going to go and be a lawyer you're going to be a you know be in business you're going to be a engineer that kind of thing that was that's and it still is i mean things are changing because parents are seeing that my child is a photographer and he's doing well and he's being paid so i gotta let him be but Mm -hmm. it's it's a conversation that is changing the landscape is changing now but growing up there was no such thing as being a chef you know yeah it wasn't glorified at all so it wasn't it was like what am i gonna do that's going to Um, be impactful, and reach people uh, wherever they are in America. And I was like, okay, I'm going to create my sauces because these were sauces that I already made to make my life easier when I was cooking. Um, And so now I was like, okay, I have to figure out how to bottle them. Mm. So I have four products. I have the mango chili, which is a chili made with hot scotch bonnets with mango, uh, coconut oil, and avocado oil. So I always used to make that because it made my cooking easier because once I was ready to cook, let's say, fish or chicken or shrimp or noodles, I just pour a little bit in there and I have the flavor ready to go. So that's something I always used to make. I'm like, okay, we'll bottle that. And then in one of my trips, I traveled to um, Mexico and I got tamarind candies. And when I tasted them, I remembered that I had tasted something like that, but I couldn't remember what it was. But growing up in Ghana, I literally used to pick the tamarind from the trees. I just didn't know that it was the same exact thing. Ah. See how everything just comes full circle. Yeah. So um, then I, when I was doing my research, come to find out it's actually a very tropical West African plant that was spread all over the world. Um, and so I came back from that trip. I had the candies, but they were too sweet because tamarind is usually a little bit sour. And so they put a lot of sugar in it. And I'm like, I can't eat these candies, but I don't want to throw them away. What am I going to do to still use them in some way? So then I put them in, on the fire, added a little water, got a syrup, and I put them on chicken wings. And I'm like, this is incredible. People are going to like this to, to cook with. So that's going to be my second one. And then the spice rub, that's something that you would find on literally any street in Ghana, in Senegal, in Togo. In Nigeria, that's a spice blend that we use to season meats, fish, um, chicken, guinea fowl. It's just a, it's like our barbecue rub. Mm-hmm. It's called suya. In Nigeria, it's called suya. In Ghana, they just call it kebab pepe. It's so good. So, but what I liked about that is that it blended very well with spices that I loved from Asia. So that's how I blended that fusion, and I got my spice rub. And the last one was inspired by my time in Europe. Because I loved um, the way they would use garlic and, and roasted bell peppers and, and um, tomatoes and, uh, and oils. And so I came up with my cocoa for garlic sauce, which is similar to what I would have had there, like a garlic sauce, but with coconut oil, which is very indigenous to Ghana as well. Right. So that's how the crazy mixes came together. And that's how I decided to start it.
4: Okay, well okay. I am getting very hungry listening <laughs> to you talk. We're gonna take a quick break. Okay. Have a commercial and we'll be right back with SC e. Bartels.
2: All right. Oh <laughs> uh, so
3: Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network.
2: Back
4: on. <laughs> hey, you're listening to Food Without Borders. This is heritageradionetwork.org. I'm your host, Sari Kamen, and I'm in studio today with S.E. Bartels. She is the founder of S.E. Spice, which is uh, her spice and sauce company. Um, so, S.E., you were just talking about the four products in Mm -hmm. your line Mm -hmm. which made me feel very hungry (laughs) (laughs) they all sound so delicious Mm -hmm. um and basically like the the birth of your company yep yep um so how did it how did it go from
2: corporate to to just transitioning to the sauces so yeah but also i mean yes but also just like how
4: did you grow a company like how did you you know right. you had the concept you had a little bit of seed right but now you're like in whole foods like how did you, how did you really grow it
2: absolutely so um when i started uh before i even launched a product um this was ooh the wee wee years of uh facebook i would post my food whatever i made because people would always say oh you do this and it's so great and da-da-da. so I, you know i would cook and then i would say oh this is what i made today um. whatever, I made the sauce, I made jollof, I made the stew, and I would post it. And I started getting a following from that of people that were interested in what I was cooking. Mm-hmm. Um. And so when I did decide, after I spoke to my friend Kwame, who gave me the money to start, um, those people were already there. And I guess they were hungry for something because they were already liking things I suggestions i had you know it wasn't very structured it was pretty much whatever i was cooking or whatever i liked so if i went to a restaurant and i liked it i'll talk about it or the food that i ate there um but this
4: was still sort of like a hobby yeah, and also when you know food media wasn't so saturated, no, like, yes, not it everyone was, not. was like Instagramming every single no, thing they
2: ate. No, no, and this was a time where there weren't sponsored posts and all of this, you know, influencers, right. and all. It yeah, w- not you know.
4: everyone had a blog.
2: No, social media was not that saturated and like bombarded, and so people if they liked your stuff, they liked your stuff and they would come back and check you out all the time yeah, and I it was miss, organic. I miss those days. It's like I more know, sincere. I know. It's, it's not just like, 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 like. It's it. crazy because yeah. I have people now who ask me when we go to like events, I went to an event at the Wing and these other um, small businesses that are starting now are like, oh, my God, how did you grow your following to 13,000? I can't even get 1,000 followers. And I'm like, it's because when I started, it wasn't like this. Yeah, it's too
4: much competition. There was
2: too many. There's too many. Even when you open your app, there's too many things. Like, there's too many um, suggestions and things mm-hmm. coming up and options. Like, even Instagram wasn't the way it was you know, where it has the explore page and IGTV. None of that was there when I started. And so um, Instagram wasn't even around or if it was, it wasn't in the beta stage or whatever. So yeah. all I did was post on, on Facebook. And so I, that's how I got the, the, the followers coming in, like wanting the product. And so when I launched in the beginning, they were already there, yeah. but still, even though I had launched the product, I still had an incredible job and making all this money and it was very flexible. My commute was like eight minutes to work. I worked (laughs) with Unilever. I loved my company. I loved my boss. Um, And because it was so flexible, I could do that and SC Spice at the same time and it was okay. Um, And so I was like, I'm not going to quit this job for the sauce But um, it got to this point in about two years in with SC Spice where I felt like I should have gone to a certain stage by now with SC Spice. Why am I not there? So I figured that I needed more money. I needed to give it more time and I needed to be able to, let's say, hire somebody. But I figured if I with the money that I'm getting from SC Spice, it won't be enough to hire somebody. So maybe get another job, which might not be so comfortable, it will make me more money than I can hire somebody part-time to really go and get a lot of the stuff done. So I left Unilever very unwillingly, but thinking, you know, I'm making this decision for my brand and for the future, Um, you know, I got like $40,000 more at the new job. More money, but it was like an hour and a half commute every day. So my life changed from an eight-minute commute to an hour and a half every day. My life changed from having a very flexible job and a very flexible um, boss and a very flexible working environment to being watched and literally monitored when I came in, when I left, when, you know... It was just ridiculous. It was like black and white at the new company. It was horrible. I hated it. Mm-hmm. I hated my commute. I hated everything. I hated the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I literally, so the I, I believe it was like three weeks in, I had started the new job. My boss's wife was in a very horrible accident. Mm-hmm. And um, he was home the whole time because, of course, his wife, I think she even shattered like bones in her legs. So I understand that you have to be home, but... There was nobody to train me. Mm-hmm. And I went from um, being in a, a position in and in a career where I would speak to people and negotiate contracts and have face-to-face interactions with people to this new job where I'm sitting by a computer every single day moving contracts in, in a software that I didn't have training in. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine how frustrated I was. I was already angry. And then, you know, things were not working um, very well. Um, so I believe they knew, I, I feel like they knew they were going to let me go. Um, because one, when I neg- was uh, uh, asked to join the company, when I was told I was going to get the job, I let them know that in November, when I turned 30, I was going to take some extended time off. So I was let go the day before I was supposed to leave. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy, crazy times. But like honestly, when I got that call, I was sitting in a car and heading to the office and I stopped and literally in that same breath where I was like, I can't believe this is happening. I was like, <sighs> I was like, this is it. Like, I feel so relieved. I yeah. feel so relieved. And everybody around me knew I was, I was, I was, I was miserable. My par my parents and my family and everybody's like, this job is horrible. Like you are always sad. You're always upset. You're always stressed out. Nothing. I just didn't want to even talk to anybody. Um, so that was the, the, the turning point where I lost the job and I had other office. I remember I had an offer from L'Oreal. I had some other office from Mondelez, a couple other, um, good companies. um, to, to to get offers and and work and I decided that I was going to give SC Spies six months mm-hmm. of undivided attention where I wasn't working full time. I was just going to concentrate on SC Spies for six months and I was gonna get unemployment anyway because I wasn't fired. I was just let go. Mm-hmm. Um so I was going to get unemployment. I was going to get all the benefits. So that worked out even better. So that, it did, it did. So I, I gave myself the timeline. I said, in six months, if nothing happens, if I don't see something significant happen with Essie Spice, I'll get another job. Um, and so that's what I did. And in the six months, that's when I got interviewed by Time. I got into Whole Foods. And that was because I met with another lady who introduced me to this group in Harlem that helps people to get into Whole Foods. Hmm. Um, It's called Harlem Park to Park. And this was prior to Whole Foods coming into Harlem. Um, So they had they had reached out to Harlem Park to Park to nurture small businesses that wanted to... Because they wanted local producers from Harlem, which is something that Whole Foods has. They have, like, the local program where they try to source a lot of their products on their shelves from local producers. And at the time, I was producing in Harlem. So she introduced me to the group. Um, Unlike a lot of the other people there, I already had a product on the market that was ready. So they're like, well... Your product is ready to go. We don't have any issues. And Harlem doesn't open for another year, but we have other stores. So let's start with those. And that's how um, we got into Whole Foods. And then so Whole Foods, we got into ShopRite. We were on time. Then later Forbes came and all of this stuff. That's so
4: incredible.
2: that's when I was like, OK, yeah, you I got guess something. I guess I'm going to stay.
4: That's amazing that you did that in six months.
2: That, yeah, that was it was literally like God telling me this is where you because I feel like if it wasn't that monumental, I would have gone back. Yeah, I would have gone back to because I liked my comfort. I liked having money in my in my in my I like having my 401k. I like having that support. And now, I mean, I don't it's like risking it all for this dream and this this brand. But yeah, yeah.
4: Um, so have you seen, you know, since the time you launched Essie Spice or even since you came to the United States, do you see West African cuisine becoming more prevalent or does it still seem like a cuisine that Americans are just basically not very educated about and
2: don't have a lot of opportunities to, to taste? They don't. I, I think since I've been here, it's gotten better, but it's still there's so much more that can be done. And I feel like... Uh, it's this is i feel like this is what's going to happen because a lot of the stores and the brands and the magazines they're not giving people like me and pe- other people that are doing what i'm doing either educating people about west african food or talking about our grains our oils our spices etc things that are only found on the continent they're not giving us a chance because they just don't see how the uptake is going to be mm-hmm. but it's just going to take one person who believes in In like, you know, the whole just like how, you know, quinoa came and took over and quinoa is everywhere now from, you know, Peru. That's what's going to happen. We need a few stakeholders who believe in the products and believe in the ingredients and believe in what we're doing And if they put a stamp on it, then everybody else is going to be like, oh, you know, I've always known about it. But no, we just need a few people to just champion it and to to make noise about our food and the health benefits and why we grow to 100 and all of that stuff. Do you see yourself as one of those ambassadors? I am. I I do see that. And, And I'm trying as much as possible, not just, you know, with this. So you know with the spices and the sauces that I sell but also to educate people you know about the the continent especially about our food and so when I go home I'm you know doing stories I'm telling people about you know farms and traditions and different grains and all of this stuff that you know they need to hear about that they may never have seen or heard or ever encountered, you know, because a lot of people that are not African don't go to the African stores. Mm-hmm. They don't have anything. They don't have any push to go there. Um, but if we change the the narrative where they're giving people like me and others that are doing um, food in this space, a chance, then it's going to be mainstream. Just like you have, Asian food and you have Mexican food and you have Peruvian food and you have all of this food, West African, African food needs to be made famous as well.
4: Yeah. And I mean, I I can't help but ask, do you feel like that feels even more crucial right now at this point of time in the United States? Because there is a lot of negative rhetoric towards, you know, immigrants of of all different backgrounds, but especially because there was that, you know, there was that one particular comment about africans from Mm -hmm. the top we'll we'll call it (laughs) um does it feel more urgent to to use food as sort of a conduit to help others understand like exactly who africans are and you know what what it means to be to be African. african yeah exactly and then you know food can be a great way to help to help educate people, Absolutely. and it's just a way in. So, does that feel part of like the motivation behind one your thousand business? percent? Like
2: I, this is my story. Like I just um, applied for um, this other competition with Girl Boss and Uber. I hope I win. I'll find out soon. But the whole point is letting people know about our traditions and our cultures, and letting people know that you know, just because you see and you know, people. In peace corps, going to the Gambia and taking pictures with kids that have flies all over them—that is not the African story, mm. and that is what Chimamanda um, said: is the, the 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 horror of a single sided story. Because a lot of the times, the reason why people or somebody will say something that daft is because there's one story that is told about africa and also the the other side of it is that yeah we have incredible um cities and we have incredible industries and we have five six seven star hotels and we have all of this stuff and people have maids at home and all of that stuff but that is also not the only story there's a there's a a a full circle of stories that needs to be told. So, you know, when you think of Africa, you're not thinking of the mansions and, you know, people living La Vida Loca, but you're also not thinking little kids, you know, in the jungle with flies around them because both of them are African. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, you know, if people come to New York, they're going to see people sleeping on the streets and, you know, begging or people in the subway or, first of all, our subways are one of the most disgusting subways in New York. When you go to Europe, you're like, you can sleep in the subway. It's so clean. Um, You can take that story, or you can take people going to Soho House and having a drink, and that could be a New York story because that's extremely lavish and all of that. So there's not one story to talk about New York. It's, you know, there's a a full... um, circle of what New York is and that's the same way with Africa and that's another thing people don't even know that there's 53 countries in there there's you know Ghana I haven't even been to all of them there's there's you know ethiopia and you literally you go from one place to the other and it's like two completely Namibia looks like a, a place out of mars you know mm-hmm. and then you go to um ghana and congo it's like tropical rainforest and you go to zimbabwe and zambia then you have victoria falls and then you go to egypt and then you have pyramids so it's like the cultures are ridiculous, so when people lump us together like that it it it's like it doesn't even make sense, yeah, depending literally. on where you go, it can be a completely different place, so that's what, yes, I really hope that I'm able to tell our story through food. Mm so that it's not one-sided and people are able to maybe because of something i mentioned on our page people will google something and find out you know how like the loop with youtube you start with one and then you watch something else and you watch something else and then they get to learn a little bit more about you know i don't know just everything yeah there's just so much that even i don't know and so yeah hopefully food will do it
4: (laughs) i hope so too um, Essie, tell us where to find you on Instagram and, and social and where we can like make sure we keep up with you and order your, your spices <laughs> and
2: sauces. Absolutely. So uh, everything is Essie Spice on all our social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It's E-S-S-I-E and Spice, S E Spice. Um, so spice.com You can order if you're not in the Northeast region because we're not out in all the regions yet. We're only in Northeast right now, but you can order online and we'll ship right to you you um but we're in a, if you go on the website there's a list of stores that we're in we're in smithsonian in dc we're in um we in new york we're in jersey and connecticut um but we're, we're getting out there we're we're hopefully going to close a few accounts with national stores soon and we w- hopefully we'll be able to update you guys if not by the end of the year hopefully um, in Q1 of 2019, about new stores that we've landed. So, fingers crossed, prayers up.
4: <laughs> um, well, Essie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. It was awesome to chat with you today. And it was I've my pleasure. Loved meeting you and, and hearing all about your, your spice journey. Thank you. Um, thanks, everyone, for listening. Check us out next week, same time, same place, Wednesday on heritageradionetwork.org. And always find us Food Without Borders on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify.